Well, hello, everyone. Let me ask you a question. If you're a follower of Jesus today, do you find that sometimes Jesus makes you a little uncomfortable? You know, what I mean by that is uh, he just kind of pushes you out of your comfort zone and sometimes says things that really, really stretch you. Sometimes his teachings are just a little, little hard to accept at first. Well, I think today's passage is, is one of those times. So I invite you to go on this journey with us wherever you are in your own journey of faith or spirituality, wherever you are in that, I invite you to kind of dive in with us. I, I don't wanna feel today like I'm the only one that really needs this, but I know I do, and my guess is uh, some of you do as well. Matthew's Gospel, chapter five, it says uh, here in chapter five, now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Wow. This must have been shocking. I mean, how can admitting that you're spiritually broke possibly lead to a happy life? How can mourning over your spiritual condition make you happy? I mean, won't that just depress you and lead to a really bad day? I mean, this must have been shocking to hear. Jesus could have said a lot of other things that they would have been really happy with, like, blessed are, are the rich for they're being rewarded for their righteousness, and the crowds would have cheered because that's what they believe, many of them. Or Jesus could have said, happy are the sons and daughters of Abraham because, you know, you have an end with God that nobody else has, and they would have said, preach it, brother, right on. Or Jesus could have said, happy are the powerful because they're the ones who are leveraging their lives for their best life now, and the crowds would have been slapping high fives on that. Or Jesus could have said, Happy are those who promote themselves, who are kind of puffed up, because they're the ones who tend to get ahead in this world, let's be honest about it. And they would have agreed. But the deal is, Jesus said none of those things. In fact, his message about what brings happiness seems to be the exact opposite of what we would tend to think. So maybe... Jesus has this happiness thing all wrong. Or maybe our popular notions of what leads to happiness are wrong. But one thing is for sure, they cannot both be right. So today, we come to this second beatitude, verse four, where it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, what in the world does that mean? Let's unpack it together. There are three common views about what this verse means. The first view is that Jesus wants his people, his disciples, to be weepy, miserable people, okay? 
That is honestly a view. And there are a lot of people, trust me, out there, maybe you've met some of them, who believe that. H.L. Mencken was certainly no friend of the church. He didn't have a kind word to say about the church or Christians. And he once said about Puritan Christians, as he studied Puritanism, he described sort of the pathos of Puritanism as the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy, okay? (laughs) Now, that was not fair. That's not at all what most Puritan Christians were like. In fact, as a whole, they were generally happy people. They knew where real joy was to be found. But that was Mencken's assessment, and I think a lot of people would kind of agree with it. But listen, listen, it's not just critics like H.L. Mencken. I mean, some Christians believe that what Jesus really wants from us is a sort of maudlin, downcast, miserable kind of people. And folks who have that view, the first view, will often point to the fact that we have no record anywhere that Jesus ever laughed. Now, don't let that wreck your day, okay? We'll talk about that. But it's true. We have no record anywhere, not in the Gospels or anywhere else, that Jesus actually laughed. We know a lot of other emotions he had and sort of things that, experiences that he had that impacted him. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, for instance, he was in great sorrow, even to the point of death, and he sweat great drops of blood. We know, for instance, that Jesus got hungry and thirsty, We know that he got frustrated, even angry, with both his disciples as well as the religious leaders of his day. And we know what Isaiah the prophet said about him, where Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah, Jesus, would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so we know these things about him. We know that Jesus wept. There are two classic passages in the Gospels that describe this. One is in Luke 19, where Jesus approached his beloved city of Jerusalem, and he wept over the city. Luke 19 reads, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus saw people like sheep without a shepherd, and he he hurt for them. Over and over again in the Gospels, we see that Jesus was deeply moved at the plight of people who were kind of missing it spiritually. And he's, by the way, still moved today. So we know that Jesus wept. And then there's that other classic passage, John chapter 11, verse 35. By the way, if you're ever playing Trivia Pursuit or some trivia game, and this question comes up, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? You're gonna know the answer now because this is it, John 11, 35, two words, Jesus wept. And he was weeping, of course, at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus who had passed away. So we know all these things about Jesus, these serious emotions, but we have no, let me say it again, explicit record in Scripture, of Jesus ever 
laughing. So people who believe this first view, there were to be weepy, miserable people would go, look, since Jesus never laughed, they say, and he's supposed to be our model, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In other words, we're to, we're to be like him and look to him. If he's our model, then we should be this very sober, downcast, mournful kind of people. Now, how would you respond to that? If you're out this week having coffee with one of your friends and they say to you, hey, Jesus never laughed. What do you think about that? How would you respond? Well, my first response would be, yes, we have no explicit record in scripture of Jesus ever laughing, but be careful, that's an argument from silence. And any argument from silence is tenuous and dangerous indeed. I mean, there are many things we don't have a record of Jesus ever doing. We don't have a record of Jesus ever swimming or running or eating figs or skipping a rock across the Sea of Galilee or taking a bath or hugging his mom and dad. Now, these are all things he probably did. In fact, I would say he surely did but we have no record of them whatsoever. And I could add dozens of other things. Those are just things I made up. I could add dozens more to that list where it doesn't explicitly give a record of something Jesus did, but that doesn't constitute proof it didn't happen. Hope you understand. That's an argument from silence, and I urge you, as you study the scriptures, to be very careful of any argument from silence. You should at least question it thoroughly. One thing we do know about Jesus is he used a lot of humor. And that leads me to believe that he was kind of a fun-loving, funny at times, and very happy person himself. For instance, when Jesus said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? The crowds would have been belly laughing at that because that kind of ridiculous hyperbole was the humor of that day. And when he said to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Again, the crowds would have gone nuts over that not the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they would have been kind of put off, but the people would have laughed at this idea of straining at a tiny little gnat and swallowing a big old humpback camel. I think Jesus was not a weepy person at all. Years ago, Debbie and I got the Matthew video series for ourselves and for our kids. It's a a dramatic enactment of Matthew's gospel, and it's word for word, and that's what I liked about it. Literally, it doesn't add any other words. It just goes through Matthew's gospel word for word, and the acting was pretty good, and one of the reasons I like that so much is it portrayed a happy Jesus. It showed Jesus kind of, uh, you know, loving life, and yeah, it showed all the brutality and pain that he endured, but it also showed him smiling a lot, kidding around with his disciples, having fun, and, and yet it was word for word. I think that's more in line with what Jesus was actually like as he walked this earth. You say, but he was a man of sorrows, and yes, he was, 
but he was also a fun-loving man to whom children were drawn like a magnet. He was a man who celebrated the joys of life. He was a frequent guest at parties, not just because he was a profound prophet, but because he was stinking fun to be around. And I think we Christians ought to be the same way. Not everybody's gonna be a barrel of laughs. That, that depends on personality. But we ought to be generally happy people. That's what I think God wants. Proverbs 17, says, a cheerful heart is good medicine. And I think God wants his people to be generally happy. And we can say, even in the midst of our pain, this is the day the Lord has made. I'm gonna rejoice, and I tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be glad in it. So I believe that first view is just horribly misguided. But that's the way some people understand this. Let me quickly mention a second view that I also believe misses the mark a bit. We're trying to answer the question, what does this verse mean? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The second view is something like this. It says, if you mourn for the loss of a loved one, you will be comforted. Now, this is sort of what I would call a therapeutic view of the verse. I will often see Matthew 5, verse 4, used in pastoral care books or books on Christian counseling or books, psychology books that have a Christian bent to them. And they'll point out the therapeutic psychological value of grief and mourning, and that is a healthy thing to do. And all of that is true. So this second view would say, look, when you mourn, when you grieve, you're gonna be comforted because God will console you and people will come to your aid and over time, your wounds will heal. Now, what do you think of that view? I think that is generally true, but it's not always true. Sometimes people never get over a tragedy in their life. The Bible says that when Jacob was informed that his son Joseph had been killed, Jacob put on sackcloth and mourned for many days. Catch his words. He refused to be comforted. The Bible speaks of Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. People will glibly say, well, don't you know that time heals all wounds? I've had some Wonderful Christian people say to me, Pastor, I lost a child years ago and I want you to know the pain never goes away. I've had other Christians that I respect just as much say to me, it still hurts, but thank God for his comfort. I don't know how I could put one foot in front of another without his comforting presence in my life. So, so here, here's what I've concluded. The degree, listen now, the degree to which people receive comfort when they mourn probably depends on a lot of factors that we simply don't have time to explore right now. But my problem with this second view is the same as my problem with the first one. I just don't think that's what Jesus is speaking to at all. Yes, I believe God gives comfort to the brokenhearted, 
but not everyone who mourns seem to receive, seems to receive God's comfort easily. In fact, some even refuse to be comforted, and some seem to kind of want to wallow in their misery. So comfort in that sense doesn't always come to those who mourn. Again, I believe both of these views are misguided. So what is Jesus really saying when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted? I think the third view is more at the heart of this. The third view here is Jesus is speaking of an attitude of repentance over the fact that we are spiritually impoverished. It's an attitude, a disposition, you could even say, that Jesus is looking for. He wants us to mourn over that, our spiritual poverty. Now remember, these Beatitudes build on each other kind of in a very logical fashion. You remember last week, we talked about spiritual poverty. But it's not enough just to be aware of that. It's not enough to say, yeah, yeah, I'll admit, I'll admit I'm a mess. Yeah, I'll admit I'm a big time sinner there. No, that, that's not the kind of godly sorrow over sin that God is looking for. That's not a prescription for a happy, blessed life. That, that, that's like a person smoking two or three packs of cigarettes a day and going, yeah, I know what all the studies show, but I'm never planning to quit or cut back. What about it? Well, good luck with that. This beatitude is a call to an attitude of repentance. See, that's a big deal in Scripture. We're told over and over again to recognize how our sin my sin, your sin, offends the heart of God and grieves him. Just take this one passage, for instance. The Apostle James writes about this whole reality, and he says there in, in James chapter four, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And I think that's, that's kind of the spirit of today's passage. By the way, you, you remember when Simon Peter had, had denied the Lord three times, and then Jesus comes by sort of handcuffed and under guard, and, and it seems that the two of them kind of saw each other, and it says that Simon Peter went out and wept bitterly. Remember that? And Peter, as a result of that, was comforted. The resurrected Jesus appeared to him personally, forgave him, and actually gave him a special commission to go and feed his sheep. Now, let's just get personal for a moment. Have you ever betrayed the Lord and then just, just went back to your room and just sobbed. I have. I have. I've betrayed him and, and just gone back and been so broken and guilty over my sin and just not even wanting to face another day. 
Maybe, maybe you've even been sick to your stomach, or maybe you've been depressed for days over the, the sin, the guilt in your life. Well, the Bible says if we draw near to God, that he draws near to us. And we can be reconciled to him and have our sin forgiven. And that's good news. Listen to what God said through Isaiah the prophet long, long ago. He said, I live with him or her. This is the person that I'm close to, that I'm really close to, the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Not to rub their face in their failure. No, God says, I want to revive the spirit of the lowly. And I want to revive the heart of the contrite person. Jesus promised that those who mourn over their sin would be comforted. Now, let me just talk to parents here for a moment. You've, you've raised, you've parented children. If one of your children, if a son or daughter comes to you, and you can, you can tell from their body language, this is serious, and they confess, mom, dad, I've done something awful I shouldn't have done. I am so sorry. And then you and then you see the emotion, and they, they choke on the emotion, and tears well up in their eyes. Let me ask you a question. They haven't even confessed what it is yet. What do you, as a loving parent, do in that moment? Are you pondering how you're going to punish them? Are you calculating in that tender moment, are you calculating, oh, man, you're going to be grounded for years over this? I don't I don't think so. I think I know something about loving parents. The first thing you want to do is just reach out and embrace them and hold them and reaffirm your love for them because you see the vulnerability. You see the honesty and the openness. And you assure them, whatever it is, we're going to work through this. There's going to be forgiveness and grace. And then when they tell you what it is, of course you're disappointed. But it's not like it would be if if there was like some forbidden thing in their room and, and they weren't being honest about it, they were just being defiant to your face. You see, it's their broken spirit that makes reconciliation easier. Now, if that's how a loving human parent would respond, how much more would our infinitely compassionate Heavenly Father respond with mercy? I love Psalm 34, 18. I love this verse. It says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And I wanna tell you, that's good news for all of us because all of us find ourselves along life's journey where we've just blown it and we desperately need the mercy and grace of God. King David found himself there and as he confessed his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and he experienced God's forgiveness, he wrote about that in numerous places. And one of those places is Psalm 32. And he talked about the relief of just coming clean before God and the, the comfort of it all. He said, blessed is the man, the person whose sins are forgiven, whose, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. The guilt's gone. I've been forgiven. The weight I don't have to carry around anymore. What a comfort that is. 
And we as followers of Jesus, I hope we will adopt this attitude of repentance. I think that's what the Lord would want us to take away from this beatitude. It, we talk about repentance a lot of times like it's a one-time deal. Hey, have you ever repented of your sin and opened your life to Jesus? That's the language we use a lot of times in the church. But I think, I think what this beatitude is getting at is different. Than, oh, it, that needs to happen. Don't get me wrong. That needs to happen. That's a, that's a good starting point. But he wants us to develop this as a habit of the heart, to live every day understanding I have no power whatsoever, Lord, to live this life you want me to live apart from your empowering presence. And Lord, if you don't do it in me and through me, if it's not your life being lived in me and through me, I'm just gonna wallow around in my failures and sins. That's what I mean by an attitude of repentance. And we come humbly and daily with that attitude. So as we turn a corner here, let me just ask you, hey, I don't, I don't know your story I, I don't know where you are on this journey of faith and exploration, what the Holy Spirit's doing in you, how God may be drawing. I don't know. But let me ask you, have you ever mourned over the fact that you're spiritually bankrupt? Or are you still holding on to this kind of proud position like, well, my family's religious, don't you know that we've got a long track record of being really faithful in church? Well, don't you know that I, I've avoided a lot of the big sins that I see other people do? That's, that's just pride. Have you ever mourned the fact that you're spiritually bankrupt? And if not, let me ask you, what are you waiting for? William Willimon is a respected professor for many years, He's taught preaching, and he's taught. Uh, he's also been a, a a chaplain on a university campus for many years. Just a lot of a lot of experience in ministry, and and I've read a number of his books through the years. And Will Williman tells about visiting a, with his wife a little country church in Georgia. I mean, it was out of the sticks, out in the middle of nowhere. And they went there. They drove there for the funeral of a guy named Joe. Now, as is often the case in these country funerals, the casket was open. And by the way, having grown up in the country, I'll tell you, the casket is almost always open, no matter what. And Joe's body is there in the casket. And as is also the case in these country funerals, usually the preacher's sermon is very pointed at a funeral, I want you to know. And the preacher said, now, it's too late for Joe, pointing to Joe, down in the casket there. Too late for Joe, but it's not too late for you. Will Williman said, now he's this sophisticated preaching professor. He said, as this guy went on and on, I was infuriated, to be honest. He said, I teach my students in preaching classes, look, when you're, at a when you're preaching at a funeral, you've got to be sensitive. 
I mean, don't you know the family is grieving? They're hurting like crazy, so you can't be too harsh. You've got to choose very gentle and soothing words. Speak the truth, but do it in a very sensitive and kind tone. But the preacher in this country church kept saying, it's too late for Joe, but it's not too late for you. I'm sure Joe wanted to spend more time with his family, but it's too late for Joe. I'm sure Joe wanted to get his life together, but it's too late for Joe. Joe's dead. (laughs) Joe's dead, but it's not too late. It's too late for him, but it's not too late for you. I'm sure Joe wanted to deal with his sin and admit his need to God and receive forgiveness, but it's too late for Joe. But there's still time for you. It's not too late for you. And then the preacher said, but the time is coming when it will be too late for you. And then the preacher in this country funeral goes into a story about people who are going to a funeral. And then on the way home from the funeral, funeral, there's a horrible car accident and they died on their way home from the funeral. And the preacher ends the sermon by saying the true story, it's too late for Joe, but it's not too late for you but that could change on your way home. (laughs) And the preaching professor, Will Williman, was just so upset by this country preacher's insensitive sermon. And as he and his wife drove home from the funeral, he just vented to his wife. I mean, he was so upset, steaming mad. I can't believe it. That was disgusting. Have you ever seen anything so manipulative and insensitive to that poor family that was hurting? It was disgusting. And after a few moments, his wife said, yeah, I've never heard a funeral sermon like that. It was not sensitive. It was manipulative. Yeah, it was disgusting. But it was true. It may not be too late for you, but one day it will be. And the last thing I, Rex Keener, want to be is insensitive or manipulative, trust me. But I do want to be truthful. And the truth is, you and I simply don't know, do we, how much time we've got left. But here's what I do know. Right now is a time of opportunity. And it's not too late to admit our spiritual poverty and to mourn over that with genuine repentance. If you've never done that, I just just want to ask again, what, what are you waiting for? What would keep you from doing that even now? So I want to end today in a way that's pretty different than I ever recall ending a service. I'm going to ask you to just do business with God. We're going to be brief, but I just want us to pause and bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm going to do the same, and I'm going to ask you just right where you are. If you want to say it kind of softly but, but audibly, maybe even the people around you will hear it. If you want to do that, that's fine. But I want you to do business with God right now. And I'm going to just give you an example of what you might say to God, what you might say. You use your own words, but 
Just say, God, I am so sorry for falling short. I just ignored you too many times, kind of done my own thing. Please forgive me. I want to live every day just in, in light of my spiritual poverty, understanding that apart from you, I have no ability, no ability to live this life you've called me to. So as you continue to pray right in this moment, just say it in your own way to God. Help me, God. Come into my life. Give me your spirit and your power so I can live for you. So God, we do thank you that it's not too late for us. And help us, oh Lord, to live every day, every day with an attitude of repentance, trusting you for strength, for guidance, for the empowering presence to live this life for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.